You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. This reading is connected to our text this morning. It's especially pertinent to our text because here Moses teaches the people about what true circumcision is. In our text, Paul says that we are the circumcision and not those who are promoting circumcision. And here in this reading, we read that circumcision is circumcision of the heart, which leads to love of God and our neighbor. And so let's read these words from Moses. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, And you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and will have compassion on you and gather you again from all nations where He scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under under the heavens, From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and hate and perse- who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord your God and follow all His commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as He delighted in your fathers if you obey the Lord your God and keep His commands and decrees that are written in the book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, And if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God Listen to His voice and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Our text this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, the verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spell checker was not very happy with me this past week. If you look at your liturgy sheet and the theme for this morning's sermon, you might have an idea of why. You see, in the world of my computer's spell checker, rejoicer is not a word. Well, that's a sad world that my computer spell checker lives in. Boaster is a word, apparently, but rejoicer is not a word. But how wrong it is. You see, if rejoicer really is not a word, then we'll have to invent it. Or at least that's what I think, and I believe that's what the Apostle Paul would have said as well. As he wrote to the Philippians, as he wrote this letter that we are looking at this morning, he was concerned about what might stop them from rejoicing, from being rejoicers. He wanted them to be rejoicers. And for the first two chapters of the letter, he was primarily concerned about the disunity, the disunity in the congregation that might stop them from rejoicing in the Lord, from being rejoicers. And now in chapter 3, Paul turns to a new threat for rejoicers, and that's boasters. There's a group of people, boasters, who threaten the rejoicers. The problem with the boasters is that they fit right in with the rejoicers. They seem to be all about the same thing. They fit in in church. It's hard to pick them out. But in reality, 
the truth is that they couldn't be more profoundly different. Boasters and rejoicers are polar opposites. Rejoicers find their joy only and exclusively in Jesus Christ. In all that He has done for them in His great loving sacrifice on the cross. That's what rejoicers rejoice in. Rejoicers boast in Jesus Christ. But boasters find their joy, or really their lack thereof, in themselves. Boasters don't boast in Jesus Christ. Boasters boast in themselves. And so I preach the Word of God to you this morning under that theme, that boasters boast in themselves, and rejoicers boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see first the comparison between boasting and rejoicing. And then we'll see in the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul's boast and Paul's joy. Boasters boast in themselves, and rejoicers boast in the Lord. So Paul begins in our text, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And that's the the motto for rejoicers. That's what rejoicers are always saying. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to continue in your joy, Paul is saying, you have to watch out. You need to beware. There's something that is threatening your joy in Jesus Christ. There's something that's threatening your ability to rejoice in the Lord. What is that? Well, it's a group of people that sound pretty bad. If you read verse 2 of our text, they're dogs. These people are evildoers. These people are mutilators of the flesh. These people sound like the worst kind of pagans. But the fact is that they're not. These people, these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh, are most likely a group of Christians who have a strong affinity for the Jewish way of life, for the Jewish customs and traditions. They could be called Judaizers. Judaizers. People that want to make other people like the Jews. My spell checker didn't like that word either. These Judaizers, they love the law. The Torah of the Jews. The law that the Lord Himself gave to His people through Moses. And they want to uphold it. They believed that obedience was the key. And from reading passages like Deuteronomy 30, you could understand this concern. They believed that obedience was the key to serving the Lord. And they were scrupulous about maintaining the traditions of their fathers. The traditions of the Jews. Likely, most of these people were Pharisees. Pharisees who who were Jews and continued to identify themselves as Jews, but had joined the Christian movement. Had joined the way, those who follow Jesus Christ. And they brought their same sort of Pharisaical attention to the law and for applying that in the lives of God's people that they had perpetuated in Judaism. Well, you have to watch out for people like that, Paul says. They're bad. 
their trouble. They will kill the church. I should say one more thing about these Judaizers is that the pinnacle for them of serving the Lord was circumcision. That was absolutely necessary. In obedience to God's law, you had to be circumcised to become one of the people of God and to please Him. But these people, Paul says, are trouble. They'll kill the church. But you might wonder about that. Why would Paul say that? These people sound like model citizens. They sound like great people to have in the church who are concerned with obedience, who are concerned with God's law. What's so bad about them? Well, in three parallel statements, Paul describes these men and what's wrong with them. And in these three statements, it seems like Paul has forgotten all the rules about arguing like a gentleman, and he starts throwing all kinds of names at them. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. But what Paul is actually doing is taking words that the Jews and the Judaizers would have used for others, for the Gentiles, for the pagans. They called them dogs and evildoers and mutilators. Paul calls them dogs. Well, in the world that Paul lived in, dogs were not man's best friend. They weren't faithful companions whom you would like to have around. They were most often dirty street mongrels who scavenged for food, who got in your way, who were nasty and mean. Dogs were unclean for the Jews, and they were seen as being sexually immoral. So when the Jewish people thought about the pagans and the Gentiles, they thought this label of dogs applied quite nicely. Well, Paul turns it around. He calls these Judaizers dogs. He says that they're doers of evil. And again, this reflects a Jewish background in two ways. One is that the Jews were doers, weren't they? They were doers of the law. That was very important. To keep the law. To do the law. Well, Paul calls them doers of evil. And also, the Jews in in the Psalms, they often spoke about the evildoers. Who were who? Their enemies. The people of the nations. Those were the evildoers. Well, now Paul calls these Judaizers in the church doers of evil. And finally, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. In the original, it's simply the mutilation. And clearly, this is in contrast to the title, the circumcision, which Paul uses in verse 3. It's we who are the circumcision. Well, Paul is saying they're not the circumcision, they're the mutilation. And again, this word for mutilation was a word that the Jews would use for the pagans. For those priests, you remember the ones maybe on uh, on Mount Carmel when Elijah was having that contest against the priests of Baal and they started mutilating themselves, cutting themselves, trying to please their God? Well, Paul says that's what this group that's enforcing circumcision in the church is doing. They're mutilating themselves, trying to please their God. So Paul is taking the boasts of this group within the church, the boasts that they would have used for themselves to speak of others, and he turns it around on them. 
These men are taking pride in their distinctives. They're taking pride in themselves. They're taking pride in what they do to serve the Lord. And they're saying that is the way to please God. They're boasters. They boast in themselves and in their way of upholding the law. They rejoice in themselves. Their concern for circumcision and their concern for the law is not to please God, but it's self-focused. And it results in making them proud of their accomplishments and in being haughty and arrogant toward others. But these men, the circumcision, as they like to call themselves, who are so focused on circumcision, are not the circumcision, says Paul. We are the circumcision. We in the church are the circumcision. That is, we are those who are truly circumcised because true circumcision is circumcision not of the flesh, but of the heart. Circumcision of the heart. As we read in Deuteronomy 30, chapter 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. What Paul is saying is if these men in the church were really all about circumcision, then they would be outward focused. They would be loving. They would be committing, committed to honoring God. But they're not. The church of Jesus Christ, however, is. And Paul articulates what the circumcision looks like. What the true people of God who worship God properly look like. They worship by the Spirit of God. And the word for worship there is the word that's frequently used for what the priests did in worship at the temple. They serve before God in the Spirit of God. That is, they carry out their priestly duties in this world in dependence, in humility, and for God's praise. So they worship by the Spirit of God. They glory in Christ Jesus. You could say they boast in Christ Jesus. They don't boast in themselves, how well they do, how good they are, what their distinctives are. Instead, they boast in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They glory in the death of Jesus Christ to save sinners like them. And they put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers put confidence in the flesh, literally. To get a sense of what Paul means by flesh, you have to realize that Paul often contrasts spirit with flesh. They're opposed to each other. To put confidence in the spirit is to trust in God. To realize that God is working in you. To trust in God, to use you in your weakness, to rely on God. That is putting confidence in the spirit. To put confidence in the flesh is to rely on yourself. To trust in your own power and your own way of pleasing God. Those who have circumcised their hearts are not committed to doing that. But they're committed to loving God. And those who have their hearts circumcised are blessed by God. They're those that inherit eternal life. The ones whom God loves. His children. And so in calling the Philippians to rejoice and to be rejoicers in the Lord, 
He has to warn them not to be boasters who boast in themselves. And his warning is applicable not only to the Jews of, or to the church of his day, but also to us as well. We need to watch out for those boasters who will kill the advance of the gospel, who will compromise the great work of Jesus Christ. What? You might be saying, we have to watch out for people like this? I have never had anyone suggest that circumcision was necessary. I've never heard anyone say that, and you probably haven't either. Not only do we not know any Pharisees, we don't know any Judaizers. So why should we watch out? Well, it's because we're not talking about the Judaizers. We're talking about boasters. We're talking about those who don't serve by the Spirit but who minister, who worship, who serve according to the flesh. We have to watch out for those who boast in themselves and not in Christ. Those who put no confidence in the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that deadly disease that threatened the advance of the Gospel in Philippi continues to threaten the advance of the Gospel today. And it does it right here in church especially in church, especially in a church like ours that emphasizes obedience, that has rich traditions, that for some reasons you might say could be proud of itself. The deadly disease is called religious moralism. It's religious, it happens in the church, and it's moralism because it's all about what you do. It's all about serving in the flesh. It's where worship isn't in the spirit, but it's in the doing. In order to worship, you have to do. It's in boasting not in Jesus Christ, but in what you have done. Your fine traditions, what you do well, what you've done. It's in finding confidence not in the Lord, but in what you can do by your own strength. The Lord seems to fade into the background in the mind of the boaster. And they get busy in the church, worshiping by their own strength, by what they do. Do you recognize this deadly disease? Do you see why it's so attractive? Because it contains a certain kind of worship. Because in a lot of ways it looks the same as worship in the Spirit. Because it's proud, and it promotes confidence. It's attractive to people like me. It's probably attractive to people like you. It's a neat and comfortable kind of Christianity. It says that pleasing God is achievable. You can do it, so get to work. And it's puffed up by human strength and tradition. Well, Paul says, watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard. The circumcisers may be gone, but the religious moralists are still among us. They're still in us. The boasters are still around. Well, we move to our second point. Paul says, I can boast. Paul can be a boaster as well. In fact, he was a boaster before he became a rejoicer. In fact, if anyone can be a boaster, it's Paul. He can boast 
with the best of them. He can one-up these Judaizers at their own game. And you know the thing about boasters is that's the way it always is with them, isn't it? You know, as soon as you start to boast, you're at a barbecue with your friends, and you start boasting about the big fish that you just caught, there's always some other boaster around who's going to one-up you and tell you that he caught a bigger fish. Well, Paul's saying, you guys want to play that game? I can play that game as well. And he goes on to compile a list of second-to-none human accomplishments. Not only human accomplishments, but Jewish accomplishments. Accomplishments that are recognized by the people of God. He says, you want to talk about circumcision? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born among the people of God. He says he's of the people of Israel. He's not some proselyte who came to the faith later in life. He's of the people of Israel. He's a true Israelite. And not only that, but Paul can trace his lineage back to the particular tribe that he came from. And that tribe just isn't any tribe. It's the tribe of Benjamin. It's the tribe of the one that Jacob loved. It's the tribe of which Deuteronomy 33 says, let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, in Benjamin. For he shields him all day long, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Paul's from the tribe of Benjamin. And he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Among the special people of God, Paul says, I was extra special. I was a Pharisee. A member of of the Pharisees. A member of of the class that was most respected in Israel for their meticulous care and observance of the law. And Paul says, I was not only a Pharisee, I was one of the most zealous Pharisees. I was zealous to preserve the traditions of the fathers, to preserve the Jewish way of life so much so that I persecuted the church when it threatened. And as to righteousness in the law, as to righteousness that is that is seen in the way that you carry out the pharisaical way of keeping the law, I was faultless. I did it all like I should have. Outward conformance, meticulous attention to the details, faultless. Look at my pedigree, Paul says. I was a boaster. But not only that, I had every reason to boast. In the ways that we measured success, I had achieved it all. Those things that matter to those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators, I used to boast in them. And I had more reason than any of them to be proud of my accomplishments. But not anymore. What are the things that we find important? What are the things that you believe make you better than others? You see, that's what Paul is focused on here. The basis for your confidence the basis for your joy. Where are you finding that joy? What are you rejoicing in? The threat from the Judaizers is the same threat that looms large for us. The temptation to replace spiritual, spirit-filled, spirit-focused, Christ-glorifying worship with self-willed and self-satisfying worship 
by our own strength. Do we do that? What's important to you? Are you concerned about meticulous observance of the Sabbath? And do you think that makes you better than others? Do you seem to know exactly what pleases the Lord on Sunday? And everyone who doesn't follow that model is less. Or are you very concerned about tithing? Everyone should tithe, as much as me. About volunteering. People don't volunteer like they should, like I do. About leading. Why don't some people step up to the plate, like me? Are you concerned about achievement? Perhaps maybe even in our community, in the Canadian Reformed community. You've earned the respect of others and you've become an elder, a deacon, a chairman, a board member, a leader in some other respect. And now wait a second, you'll say, what's wrong with all those things? Why is he pointing out all those things? What's wrong with being honorable? What's wrong with seeking good things? What's wrong when people recognize you as a leader? What's wrong with obedience to God's law? Well, there's nothing wrong with those things. But there's a great temptation that comes along with obedience and with high morality. It's this. It's what Paul's talking about. It's called worship in the flesh. It's called glorifying in what you do and not in Jesus Christ. The problem is that you start to think, according to your standards, I'm actually pretty good. You take pride in your achievements. You rest on your laurels. You trust in your abilities. You end up saying things like, I'm so glad I'm not like those people who do that. Or those people who are always focused on that thing. You end up saying like things like, the way to worship is by doing this. We need to improve our worship by doing that. The problem isn't so much that you feel like you're trying to earn God's favor. The problem is that you feel like you already have earned God's favor. You make God into your own image. You make God pleased with the things that you like. You make Him like obedience more than love. You make Him like duty more than thanksgiving. You make Him like obligation more than praise. You've created a perfectly harmonious relationship with God. God likes these things that I am doing, and that makes me good. The only problem is that it's a God of your own making. It's a God of our own making. A God who requires a lot from me, except that I seek a Savior outside of myself. Do you feel a twinge of conviction when you hear about self-motivated and self-focused worship? Do you recognize that those religious things that you do may be good things in themselves, 
but that you take pride in, that are devoid of Christ's Spirit and of God's glory? Well, Paul tells us what we can do with them. And we should thank God for that. He tells us what we can do with them. It's something you probably do every week. You take all those things together, you throw them in a big can, you drag it out to the curb, and you leave it there. It's garbage. It's rubbish. It's no good. Whatever you find your religious and moralistic pride in is junk. Get rid of it. We'll now turn our attention to Paul's joy. Paul says, I used to be a boaster. I used to boast in all those things, but now I'm a rejoicer. I used to take pride in my accomplishments, and an impressive set of accomplishments it was, but now I consider it all loss. Why? For the sake of Jesus Christ. I consider it all rubbish. I took it out to the curb, and I left it there. For the glory of Jesus Christ. It's all rubbish, Paul says, compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Paul emphasizes that. He says it twice, in verse 8 and in verse 10. It's all rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, this knowing Christ is about a personal and a relational kind of knowing. It's a knowing of a person, like a wife knows her husband. It's not about how a student knows his textbook. It's about how a wife knows her husband, about how a child knows her father. It's not an experience. It's not a logical system. It's a relationship, and it's a relationship focused on Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords himself. Paul doesn't strive to know about Christ. He wants to grow in a knowing relationship with Christ. And that's why this issue is so important. Why are all those things rubbish? Why consider them loss? Why call those who who perpetuate them dogs and mutilators? It's because Jesus Christ is at stake. His glory, His honor, His salvation. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Not self-satisfied boasters. He went to the cross in order to cancel the written code that stood against us. He took our sins there and He paid for them once for all. No more payment for sins. Christ Jesus did all for our salvation because we couldn't. We can't take pride in our way of obeying. We can't have religious, moralistic pride in what we can do Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Jesus Christ did all for our salvation so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus Christ did all for our salvation because we couldn't. To grow in knowing Christ is to grow in knowing what Jesus Christ has done for us. He gives us every reason to boast In Him. Because He's radically taken away what stood between us and God, our sin. 
You see, the Judaizers were saying that circumcision was the way to restore believers to God. Paul thought that he could have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. He says that in verse 9. But Paul knows, Paul has learned, that only Jesus Christ and His powerful death on the cross are sufficient. Jesus taught it during His life. He taught us to look to Him. He taught that that was why He was going to the cross, and He proved it in His resurrection. Jesus changed everything. Knowing Christ is not only about knowing what He has done for you, but also who He is. He is the Lord, my Lord, Paul says in verse 8. My sins are no longer my master, like they used to be. My commitment to following the ways of my fathers, to following the ways of Judaism, are no longer my master. My zeal to protect our heritage is no longer my master. Jesus Christ is my master, and I want to follow Him. I want to serve Him, not myself. This knowing Christ is moving over from one way of life into a radically different one. Paul says that that former way of life is rubbish. It's loss. It's junk. In fact, Paul says, for the sake of Christ, I have lost all things. I left that behind. And that's true, isn't it? When Paul writes this letter, he's an outcast among the Jews. He who was once so proud about what his peers thought of him is now an outcast. And he hasn't only lost that, he's really lost everything. He's sitting in prison as he writes this letter. For Jesus Christ's sake and for His glory, I've lost everything. But that's okay, he says. Because in gaining Christ, I've gained everything. In gaining Christ and being found in Him, you have everything. What is it that you take pride in? What is it that controls your life like a master? Is it religious moralism? Or perhaps, maybe it's on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's pressure to conform to the world. What makes you feel better than others? Well, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, what He's done, who He is, that's all rubbish. Do you feel burdened by that relentless pursuit for self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment? Good. Then leave it alone and know Christ more. Paul says that he wants to gain Christ and he wants to be found in Him. And that highlights the result of knowing Christ, that you move from one sphere into another, from from self-justification to justification by faith alone. From slavery to a God of your own making to joyful service to Jesus Christ. From a world of self-glory and pride to a world of worship in the Spirit and to sharing in the humiliation of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. That power is the new life that Jesus Christ works in you. The power to move you from that old way of life into that new way of life. A new way of righteousness in Jesus Christ. 
This world is a world that also grows through suffering. Just as Jesus Christ suffered and learned obedience in this world, so we suffer and learn obedience and humility to Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want to know Christ. And the way to do that is know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. And Paul, as he writes this letter and he sits in prison, he even desires to become like Christ in his death. He realizes the possibility that he will die for the sake of the movement that he's a part of. That he might die because he's one of those who now glories in Christ Jesus. He's not sure how. He's not sure how he's going to die. But somehow he will. And so attain to the resurrection of the dead. Somehow, Paul feels it's going to end in death. But that's okay. Remember, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's eager to attain to the resurrection of the dead because he's already experienced that resurrection power in his life. He's already moved from death to life. From works to faith. From boasting to rejoicing. Boasters boast in themselves. And one day, it all ends. And it's not a good end. Rejoicers boast in the Lord. In what Jesus Christ has done for them in what Jesus Christ is doing through them, and in the blessed future that Jesus Christ has guaranteed for them. Be a rejoicer and boast in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.